Sound. Love Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm the Compulsive Reader, Magdalena Ball, and I'm happy to report that we're now also part of the Blog Critics Radio Network. I've been writing for Blog Critics for some time now and I'm honored to be included in their show role. Speaking of being honored, today's guest is one that I've long admired. As the title of my website implies, I read a lot of books, and I'm still surprised, even after all this time, at how many of them are wonderful. But there's something about Emily Ballow's work which goes beyond enjoyment for me. This may perhaps be due to our similar backgrounds, our ages, and the cultural environment in which we we grew up. But from the moment I I read Emily Ballow's first novel, Fatherlands, I felt that both her subject matter and style were not only utterly unique, but ones that were of particular concern to me. I felt simpatico and recognition, um, things that I think all writers want their readers to feel. Now, her latest novel, Athalion, is very different from Fatherlands. In, in many ways, it's a more ambitious book. It's broader in scope. But I still felt that recognition, the sense that I'm, I'm reading a book by a writer who, who understands where I'm coming from, who comes from the same point of view. So objectively speaking, um, Emily's rich metaphor and unique prose is something that's been steadily drawing her fans. So Emily Ballow, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. That's lovely things you said. All true. Um, being also a, a transported yank, so um, I'm, certainly when I read Father, um, oh God, this is you know this is the school I went to. These are the things I did, and um, I, I feel a similar way about Italian. Tell me about the book. I've heard um, I've heard you speak yeah. about the book setting and how the characters arose from serendipity, but at what point did you know that this would be an Australian book? Oh, oh well, I knew that. I, I found, I mean, the characters, as, as you said, came to me kind of by accident, but the setting didn't in, in the sense that I had a partner who was living in the Snowy Mountains and I went and visited him there and, and just fell in love with the landscape. I didn't think it was kind of possible to fall um, into that next level of landscape love. Already I love the Australian landscape kind of for all of its variety, um, but I didn't expect another place to enter. I'm, I'm pretty attached to the Blue Mountains where I live, and, and this was a very different landscape, but I I knew that it was a place I wanted to set a love story because I was, I, I guess, experiencing a love story myself there. So that 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 gave me the place in which to set my characters and then I knew what would happen to them, I suppose. Do, do you feel to a certain extent that Lake uh, bean is, a, I guess, almost metaphor like the human mind, that, you know, we bury things and, and that that was a, you know, a metaphor you could work with? Oh, definitely. The, the, I mean, I'm a great nostalgist myself and Esme, my, one of my, well, I'd say she's my protagonist. She she is always longing for the past, and, and I loved the idea of a lake in, in which underneath, which was was the past, literally, um, as well as the, the murkiness of memory, the way it can shift and change, and, and things can be forgotten and then suddenly rise to the surface. Mm. Now, can, for the, the listeners, many of whom won't have read, can you read a little passage from it? Yes, I'll um, read... This is a passage of Esme's. She's um, the 80-year-old protagonist who grew up on the edge of the lake and, um, or grew up where the lake is now and is now living um, edge of the lake. Esme woke in dawn's dark with the 
big black squash face, Russian blue, she called Minnie Mueller, kneading her legs with its claws through the blanket. She reached out to stroke her, and Minnie Mueller hissed and leapt off the bed. Her cat had been named after her now-dead best friend. Sometimes she spoke to the cat as if she were the real Minnie Mueller. I don't want you to think I'm mean, but when we went for a sandwich, you always let me go up to the till first, if you know what I'm getting at. I'm not mean, but you did always let me pay. Esme lay awake. She was too tired and sore to move. She tried to lie perfectly still so she didn't trigger, but surely waited inside her, coiled like a spring. She pressed a white embroidered hanky against her nose so the air wouldn't get in and tickle the hairs of her nostrils and then tickle to the inside of her scalp, the part curving over her brain so she couldn't reach, much less scratch. Esme got up when she could no longer bear just lying there contemplating the inner workings of her body. She inched down the corridor, pulling her left leg after her hip jutted out with spasms. It took her ten minutes to reach the kitchen. She could feel her leg withering. This scared her more than her troubled lungs did. The neurosurgeon had said, as soon as you look down and find your leg bumping into things, or you walk in one direction while your leg stays put, or if you find your leg in a place you didn't expect it to be, you'll know it's getting bad. She managed to make a cup of tea, threw in a large dose of swallowed another quick shot, felt her buttocks aching beneath the painkillers. Two neurofin a day generally gave her four hours to get things done. Two neurofin and a few good lashings of brandy gave her five to six, a five-hour slice of life. In the dark, dawn's slow glow gave off enough light to just make out the steam rising from the teacup. Perhaps she dozed, dozed in that bergamot bath, but in the rising of those curled wands of cloud, time seemed to pass around her. There she sat like a mountain while day came into being. How did she know that an hour hadn't passed between the time she lifted her cup to the moment it touched her lips and the still hot liquid washed over her tongue in perfumed waves? That was one thing that stayed the same all these years, the taste of a good cup of tea. She could sit there for hours holding that cup like a time-lapse film of a flower, trained as it came into being, like a vanilla orchid. She had read somewhere that it opened between 9 and 11 a.m. or 11 and 1 p.m. She couldn't remember which. And after that, if it hadn't been pollinated, it died. She could sit while day stormed past and burn and Lucetta zipped through like pollinating, like water bugs dancing across the water, two skates, and they were gone. And the sun was setting and the birds settling into their night calls and supper fixed and eaten and washed up. And still she would be left there after the lights had been clicked out at the, at the table with her tea and only a minute or two passed within her. She thought about how years so thoroughly erased the lived moment, how irretrievable things were. She could pass the street she'd once walked. If she squinted, she could almost see herself, a faded outline, a ghost girl, all the tracks she had made now vanished the lake. Long gone were the years when the shops were just a step or two down the street before the men and their suits came and their town was drowned in a deliberate, leisurely rising of snow-fed river water. No fast flood to escape, no survival draft, just the slow secretion of water, the torture 
whispers creep over the toes, rising over the legs, up the thighs, over the groin, the ticklish belly, the fingers at the side, the chest submerged in cold bands of water across the frozen heart, the neck, eyes crossed, watching as the blue came up, as the compass points of water surrounding the body merged into a smooth, flawless skin over the crown of the head. Around her, others had walked away, shifting their houses on the backs of trucks, packing horse and cart, leading lives, waving goodbye. But for some reason, Esme had remained for an exceptionally long moment of reflection. There was reflection everywhere as water captured in twin form all that was left of roofs and sky, while the town and everybody in it disappeared. Alone under the silent water, Esme blinked. She could see just fine. She could move so slowly. She could bob and stroll in boots of rock to the shops down the street. She would walk in, find it empty of life, of small goods, only fish that darted between her fingers, nothing to catch or eat. Esme surfaced, coughing, found herself at a Monday breakfast table with her mother and her great-niece, Lucetta. Her mother seemed to be addressing her, and Lucetta was staring in that way she had been lately, as if thinking, poor dear. You want to clear out those lymph... No, your system going, Hortense was saying. That's the only way to clear out, Ez. Go on a brisk, fresh walk. That'll bring it up. Or you could do jumping jacks. Her legs would pop off, Gran, Lucetta protested. I used to love it, Hortense sighed. Fifteen minutes in and I was hacking up great globs of yellow gunk. A great feeling, tell you. You can't just sit here, dear. The lymph system doesn't work like that. Esme sighed. She was 80 years old. Didn't she deserve some mother for years? All her friends had theirs. The golden years. Isn't that what they called them? Those mother-free periods? It was practically unheard of to still have a mother at 80. A mother-free period should be the minimal compensation for the indignity of watching those younger than you begin to stalk you like a hawk over a morsel of mouse. Of course, she'd noticed her family exchanging these more and more regular glances they thought she couldn't see, much less decipher. As she left the dinner table, shuffled down the hall to hook up to her ventilator, hand over mouth, as if to push the lungs back down. Clearly, they were expecting her to expire any minute. Already, they were giving her gifts they hoped they might get back when she departed. The family didn't in their looks on Hortense, hadn't started building her box, though Hortense was surely next in line. It was a matter of principle, if not health, as may thought. A person was not meant to die before their mother. It was meant to be a cruel blow to mothers everywhere, yet Hortense didn't seem bothered. She acted as if death were a trip to the hairdresser they both had appointments for. I'm still in the middle of my magazine, her mother seemed to be saying, as the hairdresser called out her name. You go on ahead, aged daughter. She had taken to calling Esme this, as if it were some kind of great joke, shoving her down the long, dark head first. Now her mother sat dozing contentedly at the table, her fingers still elegantly threaded through the handle and her bone china teacup, as if about to lift it to her mouth. Esme got up and cleared her cup and plate. What was it that Florence not minded? Oh, yes. In almost every family, 
one sees a keeper, or two, or three keepers, and then lunatic. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was going to ask you why you chose that passage, but um, one of the things that really struck me about it um, is that it, it demonstrates quite clearly just how funny the book can be at times. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I walked away from the book feeling like this was a very moving, deep drama, and I knew that it was funny, but you know, you don't walk away thinking funny, and um, it's interesting just how much humor is packed in that passage. <laughs> I like that one. I think it's it was really the first the first kind of moment you meet Esme as a, as an an old lady and um I I think it sets up I suppose her her troubles her troubles throughout the book which are many but um the fact that her mother is always looking over her shoulder in a way that she is really very tired of and um Although I suppose her relationship with her mother is more complicated than than just that, because she's always sought her mother's approval and love in a way that she doesn't feel she gets as well. So, um, and I guess it just sets up the dynamic of the four women in the house, and also um, what happened in the past with the town being drowned and and being now under the lake. So. It, it is a, a favorite passage in the, for all those reasons for me. Mm. And I love that way she submerges herself in, I guess, a kind of dreamlike state and goes through the drowning personally. Yes, yes, it, that it, it happened to her. And it, it's very much, it's so personal to her because I think she feels that most people, the others in the town, all pay and she's not yet found her way. Stuart 80. Um, out of the past. Yeah, out of the past, um, into any other kind of new world or life. She's, she still lives on the edge of the lake, and she hasn't really, in some ways, uh, fulfilled her potential. In some respects, Esme, you, you, you talk about Esme as the protagonist. I mean, I know that Hortense is, is a hardy character, um, despite her age. But in some respects, Esme is the most compelling character in the book, with her, her mark of love and loveless life. Um, talk to me about her lovelessness. Yeah, that was something that was really interesting to me in that I met a fan through my Australian family. I met a woman who passed away uh, last year and to whom the book is dedicated, actually, um, who, as far as we know, didn't have, I mean, she was never married, didn't have a romantic love. In her life, as far as we know, because I don't want to deny that the possibility that she did have something secret. Um, but I was fascinated by the idea that that you could go your whole life without that, and what what would that feel like? Because to me, that's the sort of central purpose of of my existence, anyway. Is is love, and it, it just seemed such a loss. So I wanted to follow the life of a character. And and I I guess not only give her some glimmers of love in the past, or at least examine her hope for love and find a way to either reconcile herself to it, to the loss of love or the the inability to find it, as well as I guess give the possibility in the future for for love for her. Mm. So it was it was. The central 
I mean, I think love is one of the central themes of the book, definitely. Mm. And it's, it's interesting to see how Esme, who, who doesn't have love, but yet has quite a lot of love, she just doesn't have that romantic thread, um, plays off of you know, some, the actual physical love story going on between um, Brett and Lucetta. Brett and Lucetta, that's right. Yeah. Yes, which and and again that to put to put two young lovers in the proximity of of three other three other women for whom love as is a complication or I suppose for for Hortense Esme's mother love was she had had her great love with Jack and he's gone now so even though she had the perfection of love she doesn't have it anymore. And um, and Lucetta's mother Burn has raised Lucetta on her own. She's a single mother, and you you can really sense that she's easy for her own life as well. She's got these two old women living with her, for whom she, you know she takes care of. And then so there's I wanted to throw the, all everyone in together and to see what would happen when these two young lovers arrived in the midst of 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 these other these other people kind of just put them into proximity with each other mm. in an now, isolated environment. Now, I know the public is is irritatingly desperate to see correspondence between real life and fiction, and I won't do that, but um, to a certain metaphoric extent, do you see Athelia in the book as your own museum of this time and place and these characters that you've invented? As my own what, sorry? Museum archives? Oh, yes. I definitely, it, it is a, I think, yeah, the, the idea of the museum was what interests me. And I, I used to work at the Australian Museum, so I, I have kind of fascination with, with the idea of, of the archives. But it feels very much that the book is one in which I put a whole, lot of my years of Australia into. I've been here for 18 years and, and it feels very much as though I've put all of that into this book and it is my love poem to Australia in a sense. Um, it's, it's sad because um, my partner lives in the UK and I'm at a point where am I have to shift and I I see Ophelia now as this as this sort of spacious, but kind of almost compartmentalized part of my life, a part of my life which I hope is not is not just the 18 year phase I call it phase, but the time that I've spent here. I hope it's not at its end. But there's a real sadness for me when I think about the book. Um, but inter- interestingly, I suppose your your big books, anyway, certainly your two novels, and you know, I guess major writing that you've done has all occurred here. And so, I suppose to a certain extent, you're defined as an Australian novelist or an Australian writer. So it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, again, you know, it's one of those things. I think people like to compartmentalize and put people in their country categories. But um, you know, you have writers like Peter Carey, for example, who who you know is well and truly settled in New York. Um, who will always be an Australian writer, I, I guess. Um, but, but you sometimes find the tightrope between for at least the two cultures that you're walking, um, you know, a fuzzy one. And, and maybe that'll change even further if you move to the UK. I know. It's a, I'm not sure I can actually manage to put another country in my heart. But um, then, 
but um, I, I do think it's it's a difficult thing. I see myself as an Australian novelist because you're right. All my writing, um, I, I came here when I was 21, so I, I had I had been a poet, but I'd been at university before then. So really, all my writing has occurred in this country, and I guess as a result of the influences of not only the light here, the books I've read here, and the way of being and speaking, my sense of humor, I think, has really developed since being here. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how I manage to work that in the future. But, but the that is, I think is tricky is people do want to say, oh, you're, you write about this country or you write about that country. And, and my identity already feels schizophrenic enough that I, I don't see that it's that clear cut. I have written about America. I've written about Australia and I'll probably both again in the future. I don't know that I will write about the UK, but we'll see. <laughs> but but clearly I guess if landscape is involved and you're looking at a UK landscape, I could see it creeping in. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well at the moment I'm actually working on a book of poems about Charles Darwin and uh, nearly or I've nearly finished that and the, I spent some time in Ireland working on that, so there is a bit of UK landscape creeping in, and and, and he's an, uh, an English character. Although I was inspired by his time in Australia, was what sort of started me on that. Yes, Darwin is so big in terms of the impact that he had on the on the world, or the way we see ourselves as as individuals as well. Yes, it's, it's, it's not hard to classify him. Exactly, he's not he's not limited to one country or or even one time, which is why I think he's fascinating as a as a, a character to write through or as a muse. Mm, for sure. Now, just talk to me briefly about the title. I I know that it's the furthest point of a planet's orbit from the sun, but at what point in the book do you feel um, are we at the aphelion of the characters, or does it differ from character to character? It kind of differs from character to character. Um, I think, you know, a, a Aphelion uh, is on the 4th of July. In, you know, Earth's Aphelion is around the 4th of July, which I thought was interesting because that central section of the book that's set during the flooding of Anaminabe is is set on the night of the 4th of July. And that, that was actually accidental rather than, than uh, um, predetermined. In I didn't realize that, that Earth's Aphelion was 4th of July. July until much later after I had finished that, and I think I was just I was fascinated by the American contractors in the Snowy Mountain scheme and the way they they sort of led a lot of the work, and just thinking about the way American culture was was infiltrating Australian life and wanting to play with that a bit. So that was the reason I chose it to be the Fourth of July, also because there was was a good time for winter storms and. So it was interesting that that ended up being the same day. Uh, but, but but I think but that's you know, the opposite of Esme's Aphelion, isn't it? It's, uh, totally, exactly. And and the the darkest point really comes for a lot of them much later in, in the book. Um, so, but I guess I, I was thinking of a bigger orbit for them all, and seeing the entire book as a kind of period in which you're moving towards darkness and what is 
fine within that is, is the most that is out to the light. So I see that 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 light and hope as as going beyond the book. And knowing that wherever you have your darkness, you will also have corresponding light eventually. Mm. So that was how that came into being, I think. I've always, I've always loved the word. Yeah, it's, it's great. And, it's, you know, a lot of the book seems to have those orbits as well. And it's interesting to watch the characters going through those. Well, one, of, one of your reviewers um, accused you of committing the anthropomorphic fallacy. Um, oh dear! Don't get me started. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. No, I didn't find that at all um, because I always felt that it was the perspective of the characters through which we were seeing the landscape, and therefore, it wasn't a fallacy about the environment. So, because it, we were actually in a human mind um, witnessing. That. Well, and also, I don't think I don't think um, you can be, there can be anthropomorphic fallacy within poetry. I think that's part of what of poetry's functions and even though this isn't verse, it's poetic writing and within that I think that's the that that's part of the point of writing for me. I think that's a philosophical concept that he's applying to to um to do different category really. Yes. In other words falsely used. Incorrectly, incorrectly used. Incorrectly used, I, I, I would argue, and have wanted to, but I've, I've kept it to myself. But, yes. but that, I, I guess, too, that's, you know, again, you're juxtaposing an individual's perspective with what you're looking at. So, you know, you can have trees petrified by years of postures of yearning because they're not just trees. They're also people's emotions at the very same time. Yes, and it's the way people see those trees. That's right. <laughs> So um, now, just moving a, a little bit away from the book, you've written a screenplay for Fatherlands. Um, how's that going? Do you have any takers yet? Uh, well, I'm working with Jackie O'Sullivan, the producer who produced um, one of the producers of the proposition, uh, which is a film that Nick Cave wrote that came out a couple of years ago with Guy Pearce and Emily Watson, and she's producing it. And um, a director from Melbourne called Emma Freeman is attached to it. And we've just we yes we've got we've got a, a we've got a one cast member attached and for the role of Macy and slowly moving ahead we just got a U.S. distributor so it's it's kind of ticking forward slowly as they do these film projects but it's all looking good. Excellent. So um, and do you think it'll be it, so it's going to be produced as an Australian? It'll be produced in Australia. It no, it'll be filmed. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it will be filmed in America. But the, the the main team is Australian. So, um, yeah, but it needs to be filmed over there because it's just too hard to recreate, really, here. And, yeah, so, so that's quite exciting. I would, I would love that to go forward. And it's very different from the book. Uh, well, I guess it has to be to yeah. to make it viable on the screen and much shorter, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but certainly, Fatherlands is a book that you're able to promote across countries. Um, do you see a, a Fellian also um, being able to be promoted in the U.S.? Do you see it the same uh, way? I'm not sure, actually. I, I don't. I think a, a Fellian is a very Australian book. I, I don't know. I, I, 
I think it has definitely universal themes and, and characters that anyone could relate to, but I think that there's a peculiarity about it that is Australian. I don't know. I'm, I, it's hard to know whether it would would work in America. Um, I suppose there's objective interest in the fact that you said it during the you know during the snowy mountain in the snowy mountains during that period of time, which is of historical interest to most Australians. Yes, and it is something that's of interest to Australians. I don't know that it's of interest. Although there are similar schemes around the world and other, you know, I know of someone mentioned there was a lake in one of the Dakotas or out that out west somewhere, maybe it was Seattle. I'm not sure, but there was a lake had been a town that had been flooded in a similar way at some point. So I'm sure there are other countries that have had a similar engineering. Um, you know, attempts to to create power by flooding towns and, and creating water. But I, I'm not sure that that's a, the book. It's a book that would travel well. But I could be wrong. Could so, be interesting to see, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I see it very particularly. Yes. That's all right. We're nearly out of time, um, but I just love to hear about what your what your um, books that you're being inspired by. What are you reading lately? What have I been reading? I've been reading a lot of non-fiction. Um, I've been reading a history of reading, which is a very fascinating book. Um, I read all. I read this memoir. It came out a while ago, a South African memoir called "Don't Let Go to the Dogs Tonight." I don't know if you've heard it. A girl from Africa is as is amazing, beautifully written, and just astounding. This is a childhood that you just cannot be believed. And um, I finally read The Time Traveler's Wife, which I loved, which I hadn't read before. What else have I been reading? Lots of philosophy. And lots of Darwin. Lots of Charles Darwin. That's, that's kind of... Uh, yeah, I come to books very late. I'm always reading things that are years, years old. Well, at least you come to them with some perspective. Yeah, well, I, I don't like reading something that everyone tells me to read right at that time that everyone else is reading it, so I wait, and then I seem to arrive at it at it uh, years later. And sometimes I go, oh, that's what all the fuss was about. That's fantastic. <laughs> right, well, that's wonderful. Look, um, I'm afraid we are out of time, um, and uh, I'd love to talk for another hour or two. But thank you very much for joining me today, Emily. Thank you for having me, Maggie. That's fantastic. And my review of Ophelian is now up. I'll send you a link. Um, it's available at the Blog Critics website. So for listeners, um, that's http colon forward slash forward slash blogcritics.org. And if you go to forward slash books, um, it should be the first one on the list unless somebody else has hopped in since I put it up there. Um, and you can also visit the Compulsive Reader at www.compulsivereader.com. And again, Emily, I'll send you a link. Um, Thanks for that, Thanks. Now, I usually do this show once a month, but since Christmas is coming and everybody is eager to be heard, I thought I'd throw in a second show. So next week, same time and channel, we've got Australian cartoonist, very different <laughs> um, guest, Roland Harvey will be on the show, and he'll be talking about his new book, In the Bush, um, his iconic and very detailed Where's Wally style, which has made him something of a cult figure amongst older children and adults as well as uh, younger children. So don't miss that. Thank you very much. And um, again, Emily, I'll send you a link. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Maggie. Bye-bye. Okay,